You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Welcome to Skylit, the Skylight Books podcast. I'm your host for the day, Emily Van Canet. I'm a bookseller here at Skylight Books. Today, I'm talking with Maya Stavall, the creator of Liquor Store Theater. You can find her book in our store and online. For six years, Maya Stavall staged Liquor Store Theater, a conceptual art and anthropology video project included in the Whitney Biennial in 2017, in which she danced near the liquor stores in her Detroit neighborhood as a way to start conversations with her neighbors. In this book of the same name, Stavall uses the project as a point of departure for understanding everyday life in Detroit and the possibilities for ethnographic research, art, and knowledge creation. Her conversations with her neighbors, which, which touch on everything from economics, aesthetics, and sex to the political and economic racism that undergirds Detroit's history, bring to light rarely acknowledged experiences of longtime Detroiters. In these exchanges, Stavall enacts an innovative form of ethnographic engagement that offers new modes of integrating the social sciences with the arts in ways that exceed what either approach can achieve alone. Welcome, Maya. So happy to have you. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. Um, and I know you have a little excerpt prepared today from the book. Um, so if you just want to go ahead and start us off with that, that would be amazing. Great. I'll read from the introduction. Fade in from white. Exterior. Gratiot liquor. Day medium shot, a well-weathered, seasoned liquor store. It's steamy and sultry. The swirling air sings the promise of a months long Detroit summer. My mind winds through the series of films I hope to make this summer, where I plan on coursing through this tiny little sliver of the United States in a neighborhood on Detroit's east side called McDougal Hunt, staging performances, and talking to people about city life. This thing will be called Liquor Store Theater. This is all at the moment, a forward-facing dream. I'm dreaming forward, willing concrete investigations to the surface of the street as I move. But today, warm sun presses down on a city scene. The camera pulls back to a handheld shot across a weather-faded indigo and lemon facade with gratiot liquor, liquor emblazoned in all caps across the store's awning. People walk across the streets and sidewalks around the small modest liquor store. It's a typical midday on a summer Saturday with soft city bustle. The McDougal Hunt neighborhood's bizarre blend of abundant nature, post-industrial buildings, and well-worn modernist architecture grabs you with its surreal swooshes of then, now, and futures. In a quick panning medium shot, we get a sense of all these movements at once. Right away, the camera pulls back to a fatter establishing shot of Gratiot Avenue in front of Gratiot Liquor. We're staring down the wings into the backstage of Detroit, a Midwestern post-industrial city with a population of about 700,000 people. Imagine a grit-shaded broad city sidewalk just at the edges of four lanes of traffic streaming down on either side of the street. 
In front of the store, here I am, trembling hot in the sunlight, eager to start this liquor store theater. All at once, I'm feeling the whirling of theory and thinking up against the rolling hum of practice under my feet. The moves. In liquor store theater, 2014 to 2019, I stage and video record performances and conversations about city life in the streets, sidewalks, and parking lots surrounding eight liquor stores in a neighborhood called McDougal Hunt on Detroit's Near East Side. The resulting videos, equally depicting ethnographic encounters and contemporary art unfolding on the surface of the street, form a multi-volume 30-plus episode series. But the truth is that this book is all about the action before the liquor store theater cameras showed up and the action after the LSC cameras were turned off, far beyond the, the scene of the liquor store and into everyday life in the zone. After the cameras were turned off, I followed four of my willing neighbors into their lives in the McDougal Hunt Zone. These four individuals became what we call in anthropological research, key informants. They included Greg Winters, a former long haul truck driver whose family had owned a block of homes in the neighborhood since the 1950s. Fago Wolfson, who was an artist and sidewalk philosopher. Hector McGee, a retired manufacturing worker and organic intellectual. And his nephew, Xander McGee, an aspiring college student. During the time frame discussed in this book, in front of the liquor store theater cameras and beyond, my time with these four informants, and in particular Winters and Wolfson, modulated between deliberately thin description encounters scaffolded by anthropologist John Jackson in that, quote, thick description in a sense has always been thin, end quote, and an affective approach to classical neighborhood ethnography which Kathleen, anthropologist Kathleen C. Stewart described as locating, quote, circuits and flows of everyday life, end quote. Bracketing thick description with awareness of limits of knowing, I searched out what anthropologist Clifford Geertz called the, quote, informal logic of actual life, end quote. Over the course of the many years discussed in this book, my key informants and I drank coffee together, did math and talked at kitchen tables, shot the breeze at bus stops, took photographs together, walked McDougal Hunt countless times, went to performances and art openings, gardened, went to neighborhood meetings, made things, laughed and cried as they shared glimpses of their lives and me of mine in our own different ways. It might come as a surprise to those familiar with the LST video project that most of the ethnographic action occurred after the cameras were clicked off and I orbited from the scene of the liquor store back into the neighborhood where I also lived and started collecting anthropological field notes in 2012. The films and the field work that followed after the LST cameras were switched off center on questions of contemporary cities and social life. What is the struggle for the city in Detroit? The right to the city, described by critical geographer David Harvey as the right to participate and shape the, the experiences, resources of city life. 
is a poignant description of what it means to participate in city life. But such participation isn't voluntary. It is structured, controlled, mediated, contingent, and offered or not according to a society's policies, legislation, consolidation of wealth and resources, and practices. How in Detroit do people struggle for access to key resources like quality education and employment opportunities, affordable housing, clean air, clean water, fresh produce and adequate nutrition, reliable public transit and leisure, recreation, green space, amid the concrete grids and inequities of city life? How do people view, experience, shape, and reshape urban process? How do people shape their day-to-day? and through this, the city as a whole. McDougall Hunt had much to say to all of these questions. The backdrop. McDougall Hunt, a tiny little slice of Americana, just under a half square mile, with a population of approximately 1,000 people, is 95% African American and has a median per capita income estimated at $13,000. The zone bounded by Gratiot Avenue, Mack Avenue, Mount Elliott Street, McDougall, and Verner Highway is two miles from downtown Detroit and the Detroit Riverfront, and less than a mile from the Eastern Market neighborhood. It's a precious little slice of the city that at the time of this writing seemed to float under the radar of glitz, redevelopment, and reindustrialization. It's a sprawling post-industrial landscape of weather-faded modernist architecture, wide city sidewalks, funky urban cottages, and above all, people who never cease to challenge my assumptions. Thank you so much, Maya, for sharing. That was great. And I, I really love the intro included in this book as a way to, to reframe this project overall and how much you're, you were able to dive into the project in more detail by writing a book about it. Um, but I kind of wanted to start off uh, just introing Liquor Store Theater for those who perhaps haven't seen the project before. Um, and I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the process that you went through with that. Um, since it is kind of a mix of both performance and anthropological study, um, I'm curious how you created the parameters of both the study itself, and then the choreography that you included. I'm a conceptual artist. So in the projects that I become obsessed with, the, the actual development of process is really key. So I work through um, an intensive research process and development process and I engage in a detailed process of um, setting particular parameters, constraints, requirements, checklists um, associated with the work that I'm doing. So um, for me, the process and the ideas centering the process are equally important to the product that results from an art project. So um, 
I think, you know, really I approach a project with a, a large question, like a significant question. Um, and I, I really am interested in, um, you know, the sort of, um, various registers, the numerous registers, um, where the question, you know, can be investigated and explored. So, um, that gives a sense. Yeah, absolutely. So with this project, what was your, your big question then? Yeah, the big question is, you know, what is the right to the city in Detroit? What is the struggle for the city in post-bankruptcy contemporary Detroit? And, you know, I really was interested in destabilizing a false narrative, a mythical narrative that, you know, Detroit is a blank canvas, that Detroit is empty, that, um, you know, the residents of Detroit, longtime Detroiters, um, are somehow passive in the calculus of urban redevelopment or, you know, post-industrial, post-bankruptcy process. Um, and, you know, those, those myths and those sort of um, discursive, you know, frameworks couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you know, so I was born and raised in Detroit and I, you know, have a, a sense of the depth and complexity of the city that's, you know, um, just inherent to my understanding of the city. But I think, um, you know, in the popular imagination, it's quite problematic to see master narratives of, um, you know, white supremacy sort of um, take over the the story of a city. So I was interested in, you know, entering what I thought of as the backstage of the city where longtime residents are able to, um, you know, be in conversation and share their perspectives, a, a reorientation, a recentering of all of this talk about what Detroit is and what Detroit could be. And um, so, you know, history is really important to this context. So the book um, really operates on a, a number of registers. There's the level of historiographic um, writing where I work through several centuries of Detroit's history toward, you know, clarifying understandings of Detroit's present. And, um, you know, there's the anthropological um, sort of intervention that I'm interested in making in the text and in the actual, um, you know, moves of the project is to really question the you know, assumed hierarchy between a researcher and a so-called subject to, um, you know, destabilize the assumed roles and to, um, 
really make a, you know, an intervention that calls for new ways of um, making, of thinking, of um, working with communities. So, mm -hmm. so these are some of the yeah thoughts. yeah I really I mean I was I was a fan of the project before it became a book but seeing it in book form is is so fascinating and um while the videos are like full of life and color it's incredible how much more you get like through looking at your process with this book and this project um and I mean of course like looking more deeply as at, as you call them, the informants, but like the people who participated, the people of McDougal Hunt, these people you followed, they were, it was really incredible to like see these conversations written out and hear you share just like, yeah, stories of becoming like in community with them um, and becoming a community. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about them and your process of, um, becoming a part of McDougal Hunt in the six years that you lived there, six years plus, I assume, yeah. Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, the anthropological term informant is, you know, a checkered term with a contentious past, but it's used, um, so, so I do use that term in the text, but, you know, I think of the people that I worked with as collaborators and neighbors really and um i still am in touch and and contact with collaborators who lived in the neighborhood and informed um you know and who i closely followed um in the text and also with collaborators who i worked with um as you know cast members of my liquor store theater project so you know, dance artists that I worked with over the years, I still um, engage with them in commissioned performance works and in other ways um, across the, the new projects that I'm working on. So there's um, really a, a long standing um, relationship that I built with, um, you know, people in the neighborhood and the people that I worked with across liquor store theater um, that has, you know, it's spun its own little world and taken on a life of its own. Um, so it's really interesting to see that. A common thread among the collaborators that I worked with is that, um, you know, whatever your expectation would be, would be upended. You know, whatever your sort of predetermined, you know, stereotype would be about a person would be destabilized and challenged. Um, so, you know, I often get questions of, well, what's the, what's the one common thread that you see among people in the neighborhood. And that's really the only one common thread is that whatever you were expecting a person to tell you about your life, about their life, you would learn um, that you should reconsider those assumptions, you know. So one of the key informants 
collaborators that I worked with over the years um, was very much an artist in his own right and developed, found um, like assemblage hats found from found materials in the neighborhood and had been working through this practice quietly for at least 20 years in the neighborhood, developing these intricate sculptural objects, art objects that, you know, draw on the material, the materiality of the neighborhood in a compelling way. So, um, you know, this, this is just, you know, this, this is just one example of, um, really the, the depth and the complexity of people in the neighborhood that unfolds in the book. And, um, you get, you catch glimpses of this in the video project. Yeah, but the book definitely allows you to, to go so much more into it. And I, I really love the like magic of a neighborhood and, um, it's like, almost like unintentional community while this project is very intentional, but it is like the most natural community. It's just your, your true neighbors. And um, I think there's something so special about that. And when you're looking at a city like Detroit where developers and the city them itself is always trying to revitalize it in a sense and push art into these neighborhoods where artists may already exist. It's very interesting to, to hear you discovering those things along the way, like the things that Detroit already has to offer that isn't being presented necessarily as Detroit always goes through periods of regrowth, right? Um, and yeah, I can tell how much this is like such a, a project so close to you since you're, you're you know, a fourth generation Detroiter. Um, and so I'm, I am, you know, continuously interested in kind of how Detroit goes through these cycles and the, the way that economics and race and art are all intertwined in Detroit. And so I'm curious how you, you talk about it a bit in the book, but like how those things affected how you created the project, like the choreography even? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's important to, it's important to have an understanding of the history of a place um, when you're working in a place as an artist, as an anthropologist, you know, as whatever uh, kind of work that you're doing. And I think, um, you know, the fact that, um, you know, the fact is, is that white supremacy and racial capitalism have shaped the conditions of the world in which we live from catastrophic climate change, climate crisis, to, you know, the global pandemic with disproportionate impact on, you know, already marginalized populations to natural disasters, war, um, you know, economic upheaval, income inequality, 
the the truth is is that the bedrock of our society which is shaped by white supremacist racial capitalism has subjugated intersectional populations persons with disabilities you know lgbtq people trans people you know uh, neurodivergent people people who are immigrants people of color and um you know increasingly emergent um groups so the framework of racial capitalism is a white supremacist global scourge and it has a particularly uh, resonant impact at certain you know um, in certain geographies of the world at certain times and in detroit racial capitalism has um you know a significant ongoing you know hundreds of years long history so it's um it's not so much that detroit is reinventing itself it's that cyclical economic waves of racial capitalism are wreaking havoc around the world and um in detroit in particular you know detroit um is the ancestral land of native american groups and um including the ottawa the potawatomi and additional native indigenous cultures and the land was seized for you know and annexed for the founding of the city and when detroit became a city and um you know detroit had um participated in human trafficking and genocide also known as united states slavery enslavement of people um you know from its founding up until the um early 19 early 1840s so detroit um you know really has always been a city that is um rooted in racial capitalism exploitive economic structures and as the you know population shifted over the years um policy and law were shaped to exclude people of color black americans in particular in the detroit context from participation in real estate in education in employment and every aspect of society uh really but you know despite that detroit um you know the people of detroit have continuously um been at the frontier of innovation across industries across the arts across you know socio-cultural political economic life um so you know the the trajectory of detroit is in many ways quintessentially american and so the lies and misrepresentation 
about Detroit is also quintessentially American in, in a way that um, demands corrective, demands an accurate rendering of facts, you know. So um, the fact is, is that segregated, economically distressed neighborhoods like McDougal Hunt exist because of the you know, legislation and policy such as the Housing Act of 1934 that directly, deliberately instrumentalized exclusion of Black Americans from participation in real estate markets, preventing generational wealth building, uh, producing wealth inequality and wealth gaps that continue to multiply across generations and exist today. So there are a lot of lies about the American story and a lot of lies about the story about Detroit, you know, and these are global phenomena. And, you know, so, you know, part of, um, you know, there's a critical geographic and um, critical anthropological political economic materialist analysis of what is happening and you know um, that is essential to the project and so you know the with with obviously with the book I'm able to go into that in more detail so the you know the I'm interested also in you know as an artist you know I'm obsessed with seriality and devotion as a conceptual artist. So the process of day in and day out staging these bizarre, abstract, conceptual performances at liquor stores in my neighborhood, I found um, was, you know, perhaps the most absurd thing I could uh, sort of enter into conversation with people about the city. So, you know, I'm not, um, there's no illusion that this, that, that there, there's some idyllic place that I have produced. Art is already there in the neighborhood anytime, you know, um, as an artist, anytime you are working in a place, there's already art in the place. And uh, you're not bringing art, you are you know, perhaps contributing something. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's so much complexity and, you know, the liquor store theater videos are in museum collections and, and viewed around the world. And I, um, you know, for me, the book is an essential, um, it's an essential object in the world and, and text and, and it's an essential uh, part of the project because, you know, you, you're able to touch the surface with the videos, but with the text, you, you know, you can really work through more context and, and develop more questions of your own. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's incredible points all around just the complexity of Detroit. Um, that is rarely talked about. And you've really been able to dive into that with the video and now with the book um, to delve even further. And I think also like the accessibility of books is so important when you're talking about 
it in conjunction with art, which can be, you know, singularly owned and exist in private collections or collections, um, public collections, but still it's, especially with video art is a very fascinating um, material for sure. Um, was there, did you have any, did you always know this book was going to exist as an accompaniment to the video? Yeah, yeah. R writing is part of my process as a conceptual artist and as an anthropologist. So I started writing liquor store theater really um, the day that I started filming. So um, yeah, writing has is it's part of every project that I work through and and become devoted to. And my projects tend to take on this kind of um, durational, serial, um, you know, obsessive framework. Um, I just love that kind of work. So, so yeah, writing from the start was, um, you know, part of my liquor store theater imperative, you know, part of my process, um, you know, I would write about everything that would happen in the process of um, filming on a particular day, everything, you know, related to my experiences in the neighborhood with collaborators, you know, traversing the city for different um, sort of, you know, I don't know, just going to community meetings or, or collaborating on different projects, you know, just writing was, was, um, part of the, the effort from the start. And I was always intent that, you know, I'd publish a monograph devoted to the project um, and really work through some of the key histories and contexts um, of Detroit that produced the contemporary. So, um, yeah, and I see like this, this text, you know, and the project as a whole, it's um, really, you know, I think a, a sort of um, an opening to considering cities around the world, considering complexity, context, history in relation to the contemporary in, you know, perhaps, you know, provocative and, and thoughtful ways. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, yeah, the history of American cities, while it's not as expansive as some other cities, like there've just been such upheaval in the, you know, we've gone through such a many generations of racial history and um, upheaval that that have shaped our cities and have really created the, the places we live today in ways that we often forget. Um, but, you know, it's, it's so easy to see it everywhere, just looking at who lives there and you know the buildings we live in and all of the things that accompany these cities um yeah I think this book is so special and I I can totally tell that you wrote it like through the process because it just feels so in the moment and um I think that's so great uh what's coming up what do you do now what's your next long project Well, I'm working now on two 
major projects. The first is called Neon Theater. And with Neon Theater, I actually transform time, place, and space to neon art. So Neon Theater um, is really a, a reevaluation of how we think about time how we think about space and how we think about place. So on the heels of the momentum of the liquor store theater project, I'm thinking in a global context about the arc of history, the arc of narrative, romanticized, nationalized narratives around the world and how these, you know, how myths and stories shape our thinking so with this deliberate, subversive, you know, um, self-consciously commercial media of neon, I cast dates in neon lights that focus on critical moments in global history. And so um, the project combines research and neon art, primary source information, archival information, scholarly information around critical historical dates, um, really a critical geographic um, exploration in neon art, asking for us to reconsider how we think about history and how we think about time, how we think about our own thinking. So, um, so yeah, it's it's an interesting project. Some of the, um, you know, the the dates I really am at this point um, global in my um, approach. So the dates are accompanied by a postcard that d provides details um, in this sort of easily consumable, quickly digestible format. Um, so. Yeah, the, the dates are um, paradigmatic moments for me that really open up our reconsideration, uh, our ability to potentially reconsider space, place, and time. So, um, so that's the Neon Theater Project. And um, you can, yeah, it's, if, if uh, viewers were interested, it's all over the place. There are Neon Theater works in LACMA. Um, um, actually, um, quite, um, accessible if you're interested to learn more. Yeah, that's and great. In the, yeah, I, I, um, I'm working on another project called Inside Talk that is a video artificial intelligence, um, and prison telecommunications um, sourced project. So I am in dialogue with my brother, Joseph Cadwell, who is in prison in Michigan. And we discuss racial capitalism, abolition. You know, we discuss um, the sort of um, status of racialized social control, the U.S. carceral state, prison industrial complex. And in the um, sort of in the context of, um, you know, 
subjugation and marginalization across populations, across persons with disabilities, trans people, gay people, gender nonconforming people, neurodivergent people, people of color. Um, you know, we discuss how this framework of the carceral state is representative of you know the the global white supremacist white supremacist categorical imperative um, to destroy all life, which is arguably the the model um, you know that that the contemporary world in which we find ourselves is is still sort of um, stuck within. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So and it's. Um, it's not a matter of um, it's not a matter of race, actually. Of it's a it's a matter of of structure, of law, of policy, and practice, right? So, you know, um, with with inside talk, you know, we're interested in opening up a conversation about abolition that is um, rooted in, you know, broad coalition-based um, building, broad coalition building. Um, and, you know, yeah, my, I mean, the, the most um, sort of hardcore anti-racist person that I've ever known uh, is my father who's, white Ashkenazi Jewish man. So, yeah. you know, just to be very clear, this is not about, you know, a, a sort of, um, you know, divisive framework. It's about analyzing the facts and the, the realities of the systems and structures in which we're operating. You know, the um, so one of the, the neon theater dates is 2040 one of the um dates that i mentioned the neon art sculptural dates it's a little strange describing this verbally sure uh, yeah <laughs> uh so one of the dates cast into neon lights is 2040 which represents the date that mit scientists predict the world as we know it will fundamentally shift in terms of natural disaster famine global geopolitical conflict resultant from climate crisis, right? From global climate crisis. If urgent action isn't taken by government and by industry. Mm -hmm. So the, the issues of, um, you know, exploitative racial capitalism are the direct, you know, this is the, the, the same set of policies and structures that have produced the climate crisis in which we find ourselves. So these, um, these issues are the most urgent pressing issues of our day. And it's not about, you know, it's not about what race, ethnicity, sexuality, linguistic background, you know, um, 
disabled people, non-disabled people, like I, this is a really a moment where um, a critical evaluation of our, you know, collective situation is required. So I'm interested in work that asks those questions, but yeah. Um, yeah. But then one other project I'm working on is called A Blank That Defies Gravity, and it's a concurrent neon art project with neon theater. And A Blank That Defies Gravity is abstract neon art, and that's it. So there's, okay. there's no... Um, you know, research framework. There's no, there is a conceptual framework that I work through in a process, a, a specific process instead of steps that I work through in making each piece, but it's completely abstract neon art, color, form, line. <laughs> um, so, so I am constantly shifting, you know, between the idea of an art object and, you know, this, um, the potential of art for art's sake and a deep historical contextual research-based approach. I'm interested in, in both. Yeah, totally. Well, thank you so much for even like furthering my understanding of this project, your work, the book itself. It's been such a treat to hear from you and I'm really looking forward to everything you're working on. I have many follow-up questions, but we'll just, we'll cut it here. Um, but again, yeah, thank you so much, Maya. And you can purchase Liquor Store Theater uh, on our website or in the store where it'll be on display when this episode comes out. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for joining me today, Maya. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. <laughs>